difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. And in spirit, Tasha Robinson, who will be back next episode, or she's in big trouble. <laughs> On the first half of this episode, we looked at Stop Making Sense, the late Jonathan Demme's masterful Talking Heads concert film from 1984. In this half, we'll shift our focus a bit to what would be Demme's final film, another concert movie, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. Like Stop Making Sense, the film runs a mere 90 minutes and it makes that time count, even though we go almost nine full minutes before the music starts. Instead of jumping into the action, Demi introduces us to Timberlake and his musicians, all of whom are at the end of a tour that's lasted for more than a year. The intent is to go out with a bang with a two-night stand at Las Vegas' MGM Grand. As with Stop Making Sense, Demi condenses two concerts into one and builds the excitement throughout. But this is in many ways a different movie. It's hard to imagine, for instance, David Byrne holding hands with the band for a pre-concert prayer. And where Stop Making Sense work through many tones, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids tries to own one, sophisticated pop entertainment. Tennessee Kids, y'all ready? Yeah. Tennessee Kids, y'all ready? Yeah. Vegas, y'all ready? Mm. Let me see you clap. So uh, let's just, you know, get right to it. What did you guys think of Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids? I mean, I think I've been in the tank for this movie from the beginning. I think Mm -hmm. I I pushed this movie on at least one of you guys. Uh, I I, I really like it. And not just because it's Jonathan Demme. Like, I mean, I like Justin Timberlake. I'm not a a super fan, but he is definitely one of those artists that, like, I like enough that I would maybe like to see him in concert. Sure. But probably not pay hundreds of dollars to see him at the MGM Grand. <laughs> yeah. You know, like this, this is the way I would most like to see Justin Timberlake. And it is exactly what I want in that regard. Though I have to say, you know, on the evidence of this film, you know, you, you get a solid amount of entertainment for your dollar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, the performance is just incredible. I, I really like this film a lot. Uh, and I think, you know, again, those Demi values, both in the way he makes the film and the spirit that animates the film are, is so present, you know, in a way that just completely surprised me when I, I saw it. I guess I shouldn't be surprised because it is Jonathan Demi. But, um, you know, the film premiered when it premiered at Toronto. I, I gave it a miss because uh, there's a lot of other things to see. But but it wasn't like I didn't feel a, a huge urgency because I w- never had that huge a connection to Justin Timberlake, either with NSYNC or as a solo performer. And uh, I do kind of regret not seeing it. You know, they they showed it on on a... It wasn't an IMAX film, but they showed it on the biggest possible screen there. Sure. And, and I re- really regret not seeing it in, in that context. But I was blown away by it. I mean, you know, the just production of it, the musicianship, and just Justin Timberlake's dynamism and range as a performer, somebody who can sing and who can dance, who can play piano, who can play guitar. I mean, the guy is 
amazing. Yeah, like he was he was grown in a petri dish to be a pop star, yeah. and that petri dish is <laughs> Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Born in Memphis, so true. But he came up with In Sync, and, yeah. and I think he actually started out in Orlando with the Mickey Mouse Club, and then In Sync. Speaking of Peter, right sort of the Lou Perlman uh, yeah. school, right? Yeah, I, I know my JT history. Yeah, yeah you do. <laughs> I, you, which is going to come in handy as, as this conversation goes on. But Keith, I already knew what Genevieve thought about this film. What did you think? Of oh, it? that was terrific. And I, I kind of sorry I didn't get to see it in a theater. Yeah, it didn't have a theatrical run. No, right? it was it's a Netflix it's, exclusive. Yeah, which or? is a whole other issue we can get into. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, so many Netflix things just feel like afterthoughts and it's not a fault of the films because this is a you know terrific film but it doesn't feel like it's you know this ought to be kind of a cultural event when it came out and, yeah. and, and, and it ended up just being like another thing to watch on netflix yeah. which well, is that, that's the, a netflix problem I th- and i honestly think this film would have made a lot more top 10 lists mm-hmm. had it come out in a the theater and not just been thrown onto to netflix is because of how much people love Jonathan Demme and how accomplished the film is. It uh, is. It's yeah. It's a terrific piece of filmmaking. I mean, I, I think I don't think it stopped making sense. And the ambition is a little lower here because there is. It is like I said. It is, there's kind of one tone gone through the whole thing, which is I'm going to be the dapper, highly accomplished pop performer for you for 90 minutes versus you know a journey through life with all kinds of lighting changes and all that but but it, there's a stage structure it's amazing and, and there are some genuinely stop making sense like moments where with using the, the shadows of, of the performers and things like that uh, uh yeah it, it's all it's all really nicely done and he's he's terrific too i like he's someone who i mean i like his music i, I I not necessarily. I have a hard time making it through a whole Justin Timberlake album, but I love it when I when I encounter his songs and you know in, the, in a mix of some other songs. But. Yeah, well, and especially like this is the 2020 experience mm-hmm. tour, and the 2020 experience was two albums. And, and yeah, it's, it was too much. I remember that being they really were hard they to were get they were the, this, the second one especially was was quite bloated. I mean, there are some great songs on there. Mm-hmm. I think Suit and Tie is great. Mirror, I mean, Mirrors is the song that closes this, and I think it's a it's a very effective closer. It's probably the biggest hit off of those those albums, but. Yeah, but I think like by being centered on this album, it does. There are some moments that drag because of that, but you know he does. You you get your sexy back. You get your mm-hmm. you know rock your body. Yeah, rock your body. Mm-hmm. So you know you, you get you get the necessities, but it's uh, a little Michael uh, Jackson. Yeah, shout a little out human there. nature mm-hmm. there. Yeah, yeah it's nice poison. I mean, it's not the most obvious. Yeah, all oh, that was so <laughs> that, 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 that the poison number was so. It, so and clever. it actually like you may have noticed there's a weird little cut before the the poison. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's the only kind of obvious cut in in this film, which as Keith mentioned was filmed over to a two night stand, mm-hmm. January first and second. But yeah, there's like a, a little transition, like a flip screen transition. It's kind of weird. Yeah, that was that was that was yeah, what that was. Yeah, it's just like. How yeah. did they do that? How but, did they get from there there to there? And the yeah. thing disappeared. Uh, well, the, the reason is because it, in the set list, it was part of a medley along with Jungle Boogie and Murder. Oh. So I'm not sure what Murder song that would be, but the set list I found says it's a medley of Jungle Boogie, Murder, and Poison. Yeah. So apparently those did not make the cut, but uh, we just jumped right to Poison. Had to make some choices. Yeah. But I think one choice that he does make, and Keith mentioned this, that's certainly different from Talking Heads is is to open with all of these introductions, um, which I found a, mm-hmm. a hugely effective strategy because you, 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 there's so many of them. Yeah, and <laughs> it's know. everyone. It's it, like laser technician, assistant laser yeah. technician. <laughs> yeah, and they all get to say who they are, where they're from, uh, and you just get just get enough of them to you know just to make note of the face, and they'll come back later as as dancers, as guitarists, as 
percussionists. And wait, I think wait, it's my turn for some fun trivia. Sure. Uh, a la Keith. The dancer who singles himself out as the token Russian yeah. is Ivan from season eight of So You Think You Can Dance. Oh. Really? Yes. So if you if you enjoyed his work here, you can look up some other Ivan dancing videos on YouTube. Wow. That or is, not. That That'd is... be a kind of weird thing to do. But <laughs> Wow. That is that is good trivia because he actually did stand out just for that line saying yeah. he's a token Russian. But I think you, you these introductions you get an early sense of the scope of this production for for one and just just how much goes into just staging the damn thing. Mm -hmm. And then you get an appreciation for how all of these parts will coalesce as as smoothly as they do. And then on top of that, you know, you get that that great scene of of Timberlake and, and company huddling together for a prayer and kind of a psych up session and some of the emotions of of this tour that they've been on for two years coming to an end and that comes out I and mean, you can you can you can tell I, either you can tell or Timberlake is an unbelievably impressive actor that that they are close and this was they meant something to, to, to all of them and they had a great experience and uh, you know there's something bittersweet uh, about doing this again you know two more times and that's it yeah I mean I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he is genuinely moved and emotional like it, at the end during mirrors there's that shot of him just tearing up yeah. you know but I mean like mm -hmm. he's playing the last night of a Two, almost two year tour in front of 25,000 people like I mean I think any experience that goes on for two years you know the ending of it is going to make you emotional like you know he is an actor but like I said I will give him the benefit of the doubt that those emotions both during that psych up prayer scene and the end of mirrors are are genuine I think that my my favorite part of this film is is the home stretch too, where it's like you could feel like the experience that comes with like playing these songs over and over mm -hmm. again, but you, you can tell they're having fun with it, like just being you know the the ends in sight, and there's an extra level of excitement to it. I mean, this was a, a joy to watch. I'm happy we chose this, and I, I like how at different points they they bring out certain sections of the of the band, you know, so so the guitarists get their chance, which is a really great moment. I don't know what song it is, but it's it's really cool when they're when you got three really good guitarists sort of jamming together at once and then the per percussionists keyboards they all get their specific moments and, and dancers and you do kind of start to connect a little bit with these faces that you've been introduced to so helpfully at the beginning of the film um and then there's just there's stuff more broadly i mean the film does a couple of things i mean one you get more more than a great seat at an expensive show, he's showing you things that you can't see even if you do have a the best seat in the house. Uh, he's he's taking you on stage, but then you also get well, maybe my favorite moment in the film are the just the seconds before Timberlake ascends to the stage. You know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, you hear the, the the crowd cheering overhead, and he just he steps in into the contraption that's going to elevate him to the floor and of course you never get a chance yeah. to see that i mean it's actually a a shot that has become i think pretty common in concert films like i remember it distinctly in both the recent katie perry and justin bieber concert films which you sent me to review thank you scott <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um and, and now i'm bringing that knowledge back uh, the best people yeah so that like rising up from the stage is a i think a somewhat common shot at, at this time but it is great watching Timberlake do it especially because like he is so comfortable and he's like joking around and you know giving people dap and right up until like the three seconds before he ascends and then you just kind of see him center himself and and, yeah. and go up you know and the, just the way it's framed in the shot is is very very smart but also that moment where he rises up on stage alone and he's singing acapella 
are mostly a cappella. There's some musical stings, but he's mostly unaccompanied vocals at that point for the first maybe two thirds of the song. And then the rest of the band rises out of the stage, including like two drum kits rise <laughs> up on either side of him, you know? Yeah. And that right there is like a little evocative of Stop Making Sense for me, just like the, starting with the solo single figure, something very, very stripped down, and then building the rest of the band around it. And it obviously happens over the course of a single song here, as opposed to like five, but it does kind of contribute to that same vibe of like we are building a performance on stage for you and is it again that that shadow play too is really mm -hmm. critical too in that shot it's just of of uh well it's the wrong it's the wrong band but larger than life <laughs> like larger than life oh, in that scott that warms shot. my heart you. look at your boy band knowledge i know I, and i and i correctly identified it as not in sync um but I just marveled at him as a performer in this. I mean, that was my takeaway. Just like so charismatic, so easily has the audience in his hands. I mean, there's like a, a stair-like grace with which he fluidly moves from singing to dancing and across the stage. I mean, he's not one of the weak links in the dancing crew. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like oftentimes you, you see the, all these incredible dancers in the in the, who the performer is sort of just carted around or or is giving you this sort of half-hearted bit of choreography and uh, he, he was the best dancer in NSYNC yeah he's <laughs> the best singer too I guess right? pretty much yeah yeah so um, that sorry JC that, that falsetto though right? that's amazing yeah yeah <laughs> would JC be uh, number two number yeah. two there yeah as far as uh, singing ability yeah. but he was always the star of that band too oh, for in sure. a way that was in the way that I mean I guess Jordan and the kids on the block was also a pretty big star <laughs> 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 this, is, this is just delightful to me. I love, I love every minute yeah, of this. Yeah. Um, anyway. uh, can I just uh, like point out my my favorite shot in this film? And uh, I think a, a pretty quintessentially demi shot is uh, during the groove get in, which is might be my favorite number where they're on the floating glass cool. platform above yeah. above the audience. Yeah. And they're just dancing along this platform that spans the entire audience. Like, that's super cool, but then there's one shot within that performance where the camera is on stage, and you see the platform in the distance with Justin Timberlake center, and then in the foreground on either side is a, a horn player and a guitar player, and they're kind of, like, framing him. They're framing this faraway shot of him in the background, and it's just, like, contributes to that we're all a part of this. Like, every piece matters, and it's all part of a larger picture. I love that shot, even though it's Justin Timberlake, tiny, in the background, which is like <laughs> antithetical to the whole movie. But Yeah. Um, you don't get that many cutaways. There's enough to give you a sense of scale, but when you go to the really big aerial shots, too, it's like you get a sense of like what a big yeah. venue this is, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much, if at all, this show was modified for the film. Yeah. Well, you know, there were 17 cameras total mm -hmm. at work here. Declan Quinn shot the film, and again, it's Demi using an accomplished cinematographer. Um, he shot all all of Demi's later movies, and he he shot films as far back as Leaving Las Vegas. So he, he's got a lot of skill. But uh, you know, you've got a bunch of cameras on stage. You got some some of the audience. You have some floating around. So the territory is well covered. But again, there are choices being made conceptually about what kind of angles you want to take and and what what parts of the show stage you want to show and how you want to compose. Um, certain songs. I mean, I I, th I got a pretty clear, strong impression that Demi and his crew had been following this tour for a while, and, mm -hmm. and kind of had a sense of what the show was gonna was like and w w where they wanted to be during certain moments. 
I've mentioned this before. I uh, I originally suggested this pairing months ago at our at our live show when we all came with uh, different pairings to suggest, and Demi's sad death gave us an excuse to do it. But when I suggested it then, I brought up the fact that Timberlake came to Demi with Stop Making Sense in his head as like something he wanted to strive for. And I think that really shows both in terms of Demi's approach and how Timberlake apparently worked with him and had him on many, many stops of the tour to kind of work out all the the kinks you know it wasn't just a filmed concert they were making a a concert Mm -hmm. film you know right um i think that that really shows uh with that we can uh, we can wind down this section we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between stop making sense and justin timberlake and the tennessee kids tonight when you're up there look to your right look to your left that's who this show is for. Yes. It's for all of us. Yeah. Okay? Yes, sir. Enjoy it. Squeeze every drop of juice out of it. Yeah. Ride the tiger. All right? Incredible. I love you guys. Oh, yeah. Love you too. What a run. Two years. I'll see you guys next week. All right. Now it's time for Connections. We bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. We can start with charismatic frontmen, although these are very different sorts of charismatic frontmen. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I mean, they, they both do a lot of dancing. Yes. Uh, and, um, well, one's really tall. And the other one's not as tall. Um, one of them suit fits a little better than the other the one. one. Sort of, <laughs> I think with Timberlake, it is, it is one long act of seduction. And, and with David Byrne, it is not. <laughs> that, is, that is not the vibe from That Byrne is true. I mean, I, you're right. I mean, I think there's definitely this sex appeal thing that Timberlake has. That, I heard that, he brought it back. He did bring <laughs> it, it. It went away, and then it came back. Yeah, so I guess there is that difference too. But yeah, you know, we were talking right before moving on to connections about how Timberlake had come to Demi to make this movie based on Stop Making Sense, and I think that shows a lot of insight on Timberlake's part as far as his vision of the show and what the, what the show means and, and, and how it's put together and, and this, this great collaborative party atmosphere. It shows a lot of insight into what, what would be appealing for Demi to make. He pitched a Jonathan Demi film to Jonathan Demi. Yeah. And I mean, just the title, I mean, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids was not the name of this concert tour. The concert was called the 2020 Experience, 2020 Concert Experience. I don't know, something like that. But like, the name of this film is Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. They get equal billing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, the film is kind of set up to explain why uh, in a couple of different ways. One, just by introducing us to all of them in relation to Timberlake and who kind of treats them all as, as equals or collaborators. And, and then everyone gets their moment in, in the, uh, in the, in the, on, on the stage, in the spotlight, too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for a show that's so focused on Justin Timberlake's considerable talents there's a democratic spirit at play yeah that doesn't need to be there because this is this is not you know this is a solo tour Mm -hmm. um really talking heads are a band so so you really do have to feature all of them but you know people are coming to the show to see justin timberlake and all the things that justin timberlake does and there's a lot of give and a lot of generosity on his part to make it about more than just him. But would you also perhaps agree that to a, a certain segment of the population, David Byrne is the talking heads? 
I mean, obviously you guys are huge Talking Heads fans, you know, from back in the day. But I mean, like if not for this movie and looking stuff up about Tom Hanks, I probably could not name the other Talking Heads. Yeah. You know, um, like I when I think of Talking Heads, I think of David Byrne. That's you true, know? you know, because I think I was thinking about rock bands in general. And usually you can identify the lead singer and the guitarist, right? I mean, those those are the two you know from like Led Zeppelin to you know Guns N' Roses I mean you kind of know the lead singer and the guitarist if you if you are casually familiar sometimes with sometimes you know the drummer from one of those bands <laughs> right but you know but if you're more into them maybe you know yeah. know the drummer too um but yeah I mean this I guess you do identify talking heads with David Byrne for sure and I mean in in a way I mean stop making sense encourages that more mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, unlike Justin Timberlake and Tennessee Kids it encourages you to think about Uh, This is a David Byrne concept production. In 1990, I saw a concert called the Escape from New York Tour, which was uh, at at, at, uh, the Kings Island Amusement Park, which if if you've ever seen the episode of Brady Bunch where they go to the amusement park, that's that's Kings Island in Cincinnati. Home of the Ohio. Beast. Right? Home of the Beast. That's uh, right. What about the Screaming Demon? Uh, Screaming Demon was also there, and uh, they they had they may still have a concert venue, and, and I went to see this tour, which was uh, Debbie Harry, another Jonathan Demi favorite, uh, the Ramones, uh, mm. which I'm glad I saw them, and then the Tom Tom Club with Jerry Harrison. So three quarters <laughs> of the Talking Heads, and they did a lot of Talking Head songs without David Byrne. I can tell you, David Byrne brought something, <laughs> brought something to, to the band. Yeah. So you're saying you would not be rushing out to see uh, the Tennessee Kids concert? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Sure, sure. But uh, the point I try to draw is, uh, Talking Heads. It was it was a band, you know. Yeah, fair enough. But the thing about the Tennessee Kids too, as well, is that I think. They're such good musicians that you that in the wrong hands, or if if the show were not particularly well thought out, they could come off as just studio mm-hmm. hands because they're just they're freaking great. Yeah. <laughs> like all of the better, like like kind of great. You don't necessarily even want on on an album sometimes or or, or in, a, in a band because it's too perfect. Mm. But that's not the way this that they're worked in here. They they have are given just you know. I mean, you can appreciate their high level of craft while also just getting to how much fun they're having and, and, and how much personality they bring in as individuals. Yeah, I think another connection here is is that they're both performers that had to take something that's very much built in the studio. It's very much a, a product of production. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd made three albums before this with, with Brian Eno. Uh, this was them uh, producing, you know, speaking in tongues on their own. That's Talking Heads, not, not Justin Timberlake. <laughs> okay. um, I'd love to hear a Timberlake-Eno collaboration. Uh, but, but these are all, you know, and then Timberlake... You know, he acknowledges uh, Timbaland and, and the and the audience. These are not like you know loose improvisational uh, records that are put put together. These are very much constructed things. Mm-hmm. And to turn that into a live experience that that it stays true to the spirit of, of the records that people love, while also giving them a, a, a an amazing live experience. That's a magic trick that both of them had to figure out how to pull off here. And in Vegas too, which can be a pretty sterile place mm-hmm. given its reputation, you, you feel kind of like you're you're being shuffled around the place and and handled and surveilled, and it's not a very spontaneous place to be, despite its reputation. Um, and I think that I can kind of bleed into there's a danger of that bleeding into the shows that you go and see. I mean, like I mean, if you go to a, a Vegas show, if you go to like say the Celine Dion show. How much is that show going to change from one performance to the next? I mean, it's pretty much going to be exactly the same. It's like going to going through on the it's a small world after all ride or something, you know. But there's enough here where it's. I mean, it is certainly planned to the the second. I don't do not deny that, but you know, it, it does 
have that sensuality to it and that you know excitement and dynamism um, that I think Timberlake is trying to bring to the show that, that comes through despite uh, the location and despite you know the the planning the heavy heavy planning that went into it. Yeah, taking that into account, I mean, I mean, both of these films have to. I mean, talked a little bit before about Demi's other concert films, the storefront Hitchcock, and uh, you know, Heart of Gold and Neil Young films was shot mm-hmm. at the Ryman Auditorium. Yeah. With all of these, I, I get the sense that you, you really get a sense of place. I mean, this is not an intimate venue in any way, and Demi doesn't really try to make it more intimate than, than it would be. You know, the the Talking Heads uh, Stop Making Sense is sort of a sort of a mid sized theater kind of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, storefront Hitchcock is is actually you know filmed in a storefront. It's it's a yeah. tiny space, never meant to be a, a concert anywhere. Well, how do you feel like he handles those spaces in each film? I, I think they're critical. I think they're critical to every one of those films. I mean, you mentioned Neil Young. Heart of Gold uh, was shot in the Ryman in, in, in Nashville, which is the definition of a intimate venue or the type of venue I think you'd really want to see Neil Young perform at. It. It's not large. It's a, it's historic. It's acoustically pleasing. There's a warmth to it. Mm-hmm. And, and that comes through in the performance. You know, and then, you know, talking heads, I think, I, I, you know, you don't necessarily get a sense of the venue that much. But, you know, again, he lets in enough of the audience to where uh, you get that, that feeling of excitement in the room. Um, this is another story, of course. I was playing it with Justin Timberlake and Tennessee Kids, playing in the MGM Grand in front of a sold out crowd is like 24,000 people. You know, I, I, again, appreciated how much he was able to bring in the audience and, and give you that feeling of a, of a packed arena show where everyone is sort of on the hook and there's all the excitement and people are turn, you know are lighting their phones like their lighters and all this other stuff he one thing he never ever does is he, he never cuts away to like individual people mm-hmm. kind of like grooving to whatever's yeah. going on thank god um, which is something you get so much in modern concert films uh, yeah. especially with artists in the kind of in the timberlake realm again i'm thinking of the bieber documentary yeah and, <laughs> and, and nobody I, I don't think that serves it well so so you do get a sense of the the, the size of the venue and, and and you bring in that collective energy and that informs the, the film and, and it gives you a sense of the space that timberlake and this band have to fill you know have to entertain i mean that's a, it's a it's a whole other story than than even the talking heads um and then and then of course you look at the other things too i mean storford hitchcock is a perfect conceptually simple but but perfect way to give you robin hitchcock in a certain way uh you know in, in swimming to cambodia which is like you know a performance f- film but you could say also a, a concert film he's using multiple cameras and sound effects and other things to uh enhance and bring out the most in that performance in a way that you know in, in every in every single case it's more than what you would get if you were actually just there I think in Stop Making Sense, the focus is much more on the stage as opposed to the venue as a whole. And it like that kind of contributes to the sense of the performance almost as a play or something like, you know, in the whole thing with the set being built, which speaking of, we talked about the opening of Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. But I think it's interesting that the credits go over the the load in to the venue not the load out which is kind of what you would expect for closing credits that you see that being the the set being struck you know Mm -hmm. but this is not that it's going back to the to the beginning and showing you how it all came together after the fact after seeing the full picture before that yes one of the things we can talk about is 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 where 
this caught everyone at other places in their, in their careers. We talked about how this was, was a you know pivotal moment for the Talking Heads, where they came for the rest of their career, which was uh, you know which was really a mere three albums, uh, not counting the Stop Making Sense soundtrack. Uh, they were a studio only band, and then Timberlake, I guess. I'm not sure what he's going to do next. You know, he's, he he did that song from Trolls, <laughs> which people don't like that song. I don't think it's a great song. Oh, it was like the I song of too. the summer. Yeah, but it's yeah. like that slide in a lot of like year end stuff. But, yeah, uh, well, I think I think a lot of people resented it being in the Oscar discussion because it was Trolls. I don't I don't know. Whatever. But, but yeah, yeah, also the song came out like months and months before Trolls, which I think uh, it wasn't as troll specific as it needed to be. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's just fine that it wasn't. I, I thought it made for a good Oscar moment. I thought it was a, kind of a cool way to open the Oscars. But again, that was controversial as well. Yeah, people hate people hate stuff. People hate joy. People th- hate fun. This might have also been the end of, of Timberlake as as a you know full time. You know, this might be the, the longest tour he ever mounted. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. He's got a lot of other things he does beyond recording and tour. This, this, yeah. could, this might have been a similar moment for him. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be surprised if it was the end of his recording and touring career, but I think it's the 2020 experience was like the end of a phase. It like kind of is the cap on his transition from teeny bopper former boy band member to respected pop artist. You know, like that's what the 2020 experience album was. That's why it was so big and bloated and, you know, personal and he started taking some time away yeah. too because he was working in movies and right. I mean how how much how big of a gap was there again? Seven years, roughly. Yeah. Future Sex Love Sounds was two thousand and six and that was a huge, huge album. So but then he came back with a very large uh, two part album. Mm-hmm. So, you know, careful what you wish for, I guess. But yeah. But yeah, like I mean, I think kind of if you look at his three solo albums, Justified Future Sex Love Sounds and the 2020 experience is kind of like his coming into his own as a serious artist trilogy. You know, this can definitely kind of be seen as a a cap on that. And I would not be at all surprised if he continues his forays into acting for the time being. Mm. But I also think that he's just too much of a inherent performer to ever step away from music entirely. And I, I think we just we see from the way that he commands the audience here that it's a part of him. Yeah, I mean, not to even get, not to get too much into the psychology of it too, but I mean, he's been doing this since Mickey Mouse Club. I yeah. mean, there had to have been a point where he just got felt burnt out. Uh, maybe that explains that seven year gap. Maybe he had a little bit of just in time. Right? <laughs> just in time. <laughs> just a little, he needed a little just a little time to be be himself, but. Um, but this was this was exciting, and it was it was such a good idea to bring in Demi, and I think this is it's a nice capper to this whole to this huge album, and being on tour for two years to be able to have the director of the greatest concert film ever made make this film and make it his final film. I mean, uh, it would turn out to be his final film. That's a pretty uh, pretty great thing. Yeah, I mean, like talking about cappers, how do you feel about this as Demi's final film? Like, does it feel Right. I mean, obviously, we're always going to be sad that there are not more Demi films in the world and, you know, that this is the last one we get. But are we upset that this is the last one we get? I'm not upset. It doesn't feel like the, the most appropriate yeah. final Demi film. I mean, actually, technically, I guess the last Demi thing we had was a episode of Shots Fired that sure. aired the, aired the <laughs> night he died. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but I mean, like, that was that was Demi's thing. I mean, he was not a snob. Like, I mean, he worked across a lot of different types of film and television and, and music videos you know like it there was no elitism i think to his career so and you know i guess it's 
appropriate than you know i never really characterize that sort of thing as elitism i mean i think you have certain filmmakers who really have control over their filmography and Mm -hmm. when everything they do if it's quentin tarantino or paul thomas anderson or wes anderson to some extent it's going to be an event and something that they they work on and that's that's going to be their thing i think demi was like you said much looser because he made so many documentaries that that very few people saw and that someone some are not available i saw saw one um is it cousin bob cousin bobby Mm -hmm. cousin bobby i saw cousin bobby uh back in the day you can't find that anymore and it's it's wonderful it's just a wonderful little movie um i think he just he's not overly precious about his precious was the word i was right. looking yeah, for yeah yeah about controlling every single thing he did he could do small projects he could he could come in and direct the fifth or sixth episode of of, of shots fired <laughs> because he cares about you know the subject matter you know he he just he was not that controlling about his filmography so that's he also took some hits too i mean like beloved was not well received and was not 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 a huge commercial hit and it you know it was his follow-up to philadelphia and i'm no doubt eyed by some if not demi himself as as a big oscar contender and it just wasn't that and truth about charlie which is a delightful film in many ways was was not a hit and candidate remake was i don't think Uh, that was a hit Uh, no but it's so good like uh, that i I need to revisit i think it's really i I thought it was fine i think it's really underrated and really smart but he regroups and does a a little movie like rachel getting married which is which is amazing and it's all him and you know let's not forget ricky and the flash our beloved ricky and the flash which is his last his last feature yeah and you know, and of course, you know his last feature, his last documentary, both about music. In that sense, it's pretty fitting. Yeah, and trivia: um, Bernie Worrell, the late Bernie Worrell, uh, was in Ricky and the Flash as well. So there's, uh-huh. there's like, he has this habit of working with people over and over again. I was just putting together a playlist of of Demi uh, songs and Demi films for here, and like you know, he's hold, hold on to artists for for a long, long time. I mean, and actors that he loves to put in, actually loves and, to put in and, too. Yeah, yeah, there's a little just the through line that you know the the band that turned up in Demi stuff throughout his career is was the Feelies, which is this mm-hmm. great band from New Jersey that was critically acclaimed and definitely more of a cult act. And I could not recommend them more highly, but a little bit of trivia from Glenn Kenny's appreciation of Jonathan Demi when he died was he was trying to make a film, a concert film of the Feelies called Night of the Living Feelies. And among the people he pitched it to who said no was uh, the the uh, manager of the Talking Heads, which is how he ended up making Stop Making Sense, hmm. if, if, the, if that piece of trivia is correct. But, uh, yeah. Could have been a different thing. I Yeah, I, I, I discovered the feelies through Married to the Mob. The, right. the, the song uh, Too Far Gone is in that film and then I, I bought that the record that was on and, and uh other feelies mm-hmm. albums and that that they uh he was they're, they're in, in something wild they're the the prom band or the re- <laughs> reunion right. band and, and something wild they that's, are, that's actually yeah. the feelies and all of his all, all of his corman buddies and certain character mm-hmm. actors and producers would kind of turn up in his films too so there was kind of a family quality to them robin hitchcock as it turns up as a bad guy and in, in, in uh, the manchurian candidate is actually pretty chilling and i don't think he's a scary guy but but that's uh uh they make he's made scary there yeah for sure well i had a feeling this would turn into a jonathan demi love fest by the end of it and, and uh, uh before we get uh any more off the track of the two films we came here to talk about we should probably wind down but uh you can find stop making sense on blu-ray and dvd uh, I, I highly recommend the blu-ray there's lots of cool features on that it's also on the usual streaming services and you can watch justin timberlake and the tennessee kids on netflix where it debuted and, and still is We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show.
Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I thought I'd go with another Netflix exclusive. Okay. Um, called Casting Jean Benet. You stole mine! Did I really? It's okay, I have a second one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is a very unusual and conceptually... I, I should have known. I should really? have known. Because it's such Scott Tobias bait. Go ahead. It really is. Because it's like, like a really super concept-oriented, aesthetically-minded documentary. Uh, premiered at Sundance. It's currently on Netflix. It was a Netflix production. Never found its way to the theaters, which again... Is a gripe for another day. Uh, but um, this is a film by uh, Kitty Green. Uh, she put out a casting call for a fake fictional film about Jean Benet Ramsey. Uh, she did it in the Colorado Springs area where the child was, was murdered. And the film is basically a highly stylized mix of talking head interviews uh, with uh, the actors auditioning and scripted scenes of them um, playing Jean Benet, John and Patsy Ramsey, and, and other people associated with the case. You know, all the kids auditioning to play Jean Benet and her brother were, were not even born <laughs> when the murder took place. But the adults all have a fascinating array of emotions and feelings and theories about this uh, case. The film is often hilarious and sad, too, and full of different weird interpretations of, of the truth. And it's got kind of an Errol Morris-like curiosity about the quirks of human nature uh, there's a character in there who's auditioning for the part of john ramsey who's like a sex instructor <laughs> on, on he the gets side. the part i think he does he does but he also g gives us some good information about various instruments of whatever cat of nine tails right exactly flogger i know it's like <laughs> it's a lot of detail a lot of detail uh and plus you're done in 80 minutes yeah that's it 80 minutes of your time um, it's a pretty major film. It was really well-liked at Sundance for good reason. And um, and it's just sitting there on Netflix, just sitting there. Yeah, I'll I'll piggyback on this recommendation, which was also going to be my recommendation. But yeah, it's like, I'm not usually interested in true crime mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a genre, genre of storytelling. So I was like, not at all interested in, in this until I read what it really was. And then I became much more interested in it and was very much rewarded for my curiosity because it's so interesting. And I think it's interesting to see, to hear these people who are auditioning kind of like sharing their own personal experiences and then seeing how those experiences color, how they viewed the sensationalized tabloid story of the Jean Benet murders and what their own experience brings to their experience of that story. And it's, it ends up telling a much bigger story, I think, just kind of about, well, A, about this town, because I think it was Boulder, not Colorado oh, okay. Springs. Okay, I it was Colorado Springs. And, you know. it, it is Boulder. Yeah. Okay. So you do kind of end up getting a little, like, a profile of the town, and there is, uh, you know, kind of a lot said in the film about, you know, Boulder's dark side, I guess, mm. apparently has a pedophilia problem or had, <laughs> you know? So, like, you get that bigger story, but then even on top of it, you get a kind of a much bigger story about how we engage with tabloid culture and sensational stories like this. And it's, I, I second that recommendation. Keith, have you seen it? I haven't, no. no. I was wondering, are, are you actually going to recommend another film, too? Uh, not, a, not a film. I had a what was going to be a supplementary recommendation, but now I guess it's my only recommendation. <laughs> um, but it's, it's not actually a film, or if it is, it's a very, very short one. But it's in the spirit of what we were talking about today. So I wanted to recommend the music video for Rock's sister act Haim's new song, which oh, is called Right Now. So uh, good. It's a one-shot video directed by none no, other. No, it's not one-shot. 
Oh, well, it's... Uh, it's got one, it opens with one very long shot. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Where, where's the cut? Is it when it goes behind the booth? No, 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 no. no. There, there are several cuts towards the end. Okay. But, 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 uh, but it, it does start with one... Go ahead. I'm okay, okay, okay. It's a, let's say it's a long shot mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, music video directed by none other than Paul Thomas Anderson, who has uh, quite a few mu- music videos under his belt. Um, and most of them are very interesting. And this is one of them. Um, I'm recommending this for two reasons. Uh, the first being that it's just a really great song and you should hear it, but also because it fits into a lot of what we've been talking about with Stop Making Sense and Justin Timberlake. The long shot approach allows both the song and the video to build and develop in this really interesting way. And Anderson uses both camera movement and sound techniques to create this immersive you are there experience in the middle of these three sisters building the song instrument by instrument and, and layer by layer. It's really neat. It's about four and a half minutes long. So there's really no reason to not take a few minutes and check it out if you haven't already. Yeah, I really uh, love this video and i've watched it several times so i can confirm there's some cuts but not (laughs) not at the beginning and it's just like the blocking on this thing is just miraculous and i don't i can't imagine how long it took to to get it right because you're talking about like slivers of the frame that are the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. uh and and really get that that i guess that's a musical thing of just like knowing when to strike that note and being there when you need to need to be there so it's really fun to watch the timing of it and it really enhances you know the musicality of of sisters and and how they kind of come with their collaboration and their their abilities you know once when they pick up the the sticks and start Mm -hmm. drumming there's like little foley too like you you like hear the sticks clicking together you know and i can't i can't tell if it was added after the fact or if it was just because it was close to the mic but that's what i mean when i say like he uses sound techniques to create the feeling that you're there in the studio with them and you're hearing these little bits of ambient noise yeah you know this connection between it and daydreaming the the radiohead song is just like like a sense of just movement and fluidity and 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 mood it really just puts you in a state this this video and i think it has to do with the movement of the camera and the sustaining of of longer shots and that sort of thing and uh you definitely feel like you you're seeing a very directed yeah. thing but great really great and it's a good song yeah that's a good band i like i like, I like him uh well, what about you keith sure i i'm gonna recommend a film i saw at a film festival i went to a film festival guys film i never festival. i never film go to festival. film festivals and and i went to the overlook film festival which was held at the uh timberline lodge in oregon which is where they shot the exteriors for The Shining, which is to say about 30 seconds of actual <laughs> footage because... The hedge maze isn't there, Keith? hedge maze is not there, and, uh. and, and, and except for one shot, there's I don't believe there's any shots with actors. There's like one shot of uh, Shelley Duvall and the kid that's actually the Timberline. Other than that, it's all all reconstructed in, in England with a mad madman-like precision by uh, Stanley Kubrick. But but it, they had a horror movie festival there, and it was so cool. And I saw a lot of good stuff there, and, and I, I, may, I may mine it for other recommendations later. But but uh, the one I'd recommend is a movie you can see by the time you, you're listening to this, you can you can go watch it on VOD, or if, or if you live in a town uh, with a, an art house showing it, it's called Hounds of Love, and it's an Australian film from a, a new director named Ben. Young, who uh, I think you'll probably be hearing his name some more. It is a it's a tough film, guys. It's it's a <laughs> it's a tough sit, as they say, but it's so skillfully done and smart and complex that all those qualities overwhelm the sort of the repulsiveness of the situation. It it is a set in um, 1987 Perth, and it's about a, a couple uh, played by Emma Booth and Stephen Curry, who is 
best known as a comedian in Australia, although although it's kind of hard to YouTube clips of him when you have your name is spelled exactly the same as one of the most famous basketball <laughs> That's players. What I was <laughs> also, also known as a as, as a great shooting guard yeah, for sure. the uh, Golden State Warriors. Uh, but they are a uh, a couple, a fairly monstrous couple who kidnaps. Uh, teenage girls and hold them hostage and, and do horrible things and then kill them. And this is the story of one girl they kidnapped, played by Ashley Cummings. She gets kidnapped and sort of kind of like starts to see cracks in their relationship and tries to realize that, that her only way out is to kind of play them against each other. And it's this really, I forget who I was talking to at the festival, but you, you take out all the all the murder and, and abuse and kidnapping. And it, it's still like this really interesting portrait of a, a, of a abusive dysfunctional relationship. Uh, there's, it's, like I said, fair warning. It, this is not a pleasant film in any sense of the word, but it's so skillfully done from, from the acting to the filmmaking that, uh, that I, 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 I highly recommend it. Well, that sound you hear is Scott running toward the theater and uh-huh. me running away from <laughs> it. Yep, yep. Uh, that's exactly how I would. Uh, that's uh, exactly yeah, what I would suggest. Australian. There seems to be some torture in there. Mm, yeah, I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> it's called extreme horror. Scott. I like it. <laughs> And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out May 30th and June 1st. Scott, what do we have lined up? Well, years ago, uh, the notion of a big-screen version of Baywatch sounded about as appealing as a big-screen version of Baywatch. (laughs) (laughs) And while we haven't seen it yet, as of this recording, the new action comedy starring The Rock and Zac Efron is being released with a certain amount of confidence and swagger, I would say, uh, by the studio releasing it. The trailers seem to suggest... That Baywatch has been blessed with a certain amount of comic self-awareness uh, among its more purient assets. Um, <laughs> we've seen that happen, too, recently with the 21 Jump Street movies, another marginal TV enterprise given a fresh take and new life as a film franchise. But those movies weren't the first to pull off that trick. For our next episodes, we're going back a little further to 1995's The Brady Bunch movie which offered a good lesson in how to turn small-screen dross into big-screen gold. We may talk a little bit about the sequel, too, so uh, get watching. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Stop Making Sense and Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730, and we'd love getting those, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? I am the Deputy Culture Editor at Vox.com at the Culture section there, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. I am on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the uh, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Vulture, uh, Variety, Uproxx, uh, uh, Guardian, and other fine publications. And I'm the Editorial Director of Film and Television at Uprox. You can find me there at Uproxx.com and on Twitter at KFIPS3000. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base. Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Show me